Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Tom Wells once wrote, The Christian rejoices in the wisdom of God. Heartaches come to him as it does to all men. Puzzles about the world situation perplex him too. He has no inside information on the day-to-day acts of God. But the Christian has something better. He has faith in the wisdom of God. The Christian knows that God knows what he's doing. So science versus religion. We've heard that before. Because there are many people who think today that there is a fundamental conflict between religion and science and their respective worldviews. In fact, ever since the Scopes trial about evolution being taught in schools in the 1920s, more and more people believe that science, uh, as it continues to advance, that this conflict is going to, to grow. And this has led many people to think that we need to abandon then the authority of the Bible altogether or at least for some people to adopt a different view of the Scriptures, one that's less than inerrant, and that we just need to simply allow the Scriptures to talk about spiritual things, but then let science teach us about physical and material things. But the problem is, in either case, the authority of the Scriptures and the sufficiency of the Scriptures is undermined. But here's the truth. This perspective that science and our faith are incompatible, like every other false perspective about Christianity, is rooted in the same error, right? And, and, and that, that it is, it, it, that what that is is having an insufficient view of God and having an overinflated view of man. That's the fundamental error, having a low view of God and a high view of man. All the false views of our, of our faith come from this one error, whether it's the false dichotomy between, between science and faith, whether it's the denial of the Trinity or, or the debate of the sufficiency of Scripture or the denial of God's absolute sovereignty. Every error, every false teaching, every heresy, every abuse of Scripture, every objection to Orthodox Christian doctrine is rooted in an insufficient view of God and an overinflated view of mankind. And that goes for those who think that science and faith are incompatible. Because I don't think that there is a conflict between science and my faith. Now hear me, I am a young earth six-day creationist. I reject outright the philosophy of Darwinian macroevolution. And I believe that there was a literal garden. I believe that Adam and Eve were the literal first humans, but yet I still love science. I love quantum physics. I know that's weird, right? It's okay. I love cosmology, which is the study of the universe. I love molecular biology. And I love all the discoveries and the advancements in technology. And I think it's exciting to learn new things because I believe every new discovery ultimately points to a glorious and creative and awesome God. And with that, I don't struggle or worry about discoveries that are made that might lead some scientists to draw conclusions that seem to be contradictory to what the Bible teaches. And the reason why I don't struggle is for, is for two reasons. First, what science thinks that they know today, right, oftentimes will be discarded tomorrow, right? Scientists once thought that the smallest possible particle was an atom, and guess what? They were wrong. Scientists up until the middle of the 20th century thought that the universe was eternal, and guess what? They were wrong. Scientists thought that light had to be either a wave or a particle, but it couldn't be both. And guess what? They were wrong. Scientists thought that eggs were bad for you. Praise the Lord, they were wrong. Right? And we can go on and on, right? We can cite lots of examples. They even used science at one time to, you know, to uh, promote the benefits of cigarette smoking. 
Right? Much of what scientists has held on to as truth today right, will ultimately be thrown out tomorrow. Secondly, I don't struggle because I know what I know about God. As Isaiah said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And, and here's the lofty statement, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than yours. God is infinitely smarter and wiser than I am. Whereas Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. The reason why I don't struggle is because I acknowledge the fact that God is infinitely greater than my imagination and the imaginations of everybody in the world, including the smartest ones. And because of that, I trust in the fact that he's wiser than me and he knows more than I do. I mean, think about this. One of my favorite facts in all of science is that the known universe that we can see, and by the way, with our telescopes today, we can see a lot. In fact, you can actually technically see to the, almost the beginning of the universe, right? Because when you look across the universe, you're looking back across time, in essence, right? But scientists have tell, are telling us that the universe is over 96 billion light years across. That is a number that you and I don't have any possible way to to relate to. It's not something we can even think about or even like understand. The universe, its scale, is simply more than our complex, more complex than our imaginations will allow us to, to hold on to, right? Even the smartest ones. Scientists are even have been, have been saying, even in the last decade, when it comes to quantum physics, that we're coming to a point that we can't even use language to talk about what we're learning because there's no way to express it. Right, right. But what we know from the scriptures and what we know by implication of the complexity and the size of the universe is that the God who created the universe is necessarily outside of it and distinct from it and is by necessity greater than the universe. And as scientists continue to study the universe and quantum physics, they are continually surprised about what they find. They discovered that the material universe doesn't always behave the way they thought that it would behave, right? And they discovered that everything is more complex than they could have ever imagined. And, and the deeper they look, the more complex it gets. And what, and what that means is if the universe is hard to comprehend and understand, then how much more difficult to comprehend is the God who created it all? You see, what science ultimately points to is what the Bible's been telling us all along. And that is God is completely holy, right? And what I mean by holy, what I mean is completely set apart. That's what holy means. It means to be set apart. God is in a class all by himself. God is completely different and other than us and anything else in creation. We, like the rest of the universe, is material. But God is immaterial. By definition, more than we can understand. We are finite, but God is infinite. We are temporal, bound by time. God is eternal. We are dependent on something else for existence. God is completely uncaused and self-existing. God is radically, and I can't stress this enough, this is a truth, by the way, that will change your whole appreciation for what he's done for you if you'll just wrap your head around this, that God is radically different than you can possibly imagine, radically different than all of his creation. And if the universe is vast and beyond our feeble minds to grab a hold of, then how much more is God? God is vastly different from us, and we would never even be able to know him except that he, by his grace, has revealed himself to us. And he's revealed himself to us in creation, as the Bible tells us. But more importantly, he's made himself known in his word. And, and, and with that, then, we, as his creation, have a choice. We either trust in our limited understanding and our limited senses and our limited technology to measure the world, or we trust what God has said about himself in his word. That's the choices 
that we have when it, seem, when it comes to this conflict. We either trust in man's ability to measure and think and to reason perfectly, or we take God at his word trusting that one day even scientific discovery will vindicate what he says about himself. And the underlying assumption that drives this, the underlying assumption that drives the choice that we make is ultimately how we view God. If we view God, if we have a high view of God, we will, by, by implication, have a, a down-to-earth view of man. And we will recognize that man has flaws in his ability to learn and to reason. And we will tend to trust God and his word, even when things don't completely make sense to us from our point of view. But if we have an inflated view of man and his reasoning faculties, we will tend to have a lower view of God. And you will tend to trust in our feelings and our intuitions and our experiences in what we can see and what we can measure rather than what God has revealed in His Word about Himself. Those who reject the authority of scriptures do so because they have an inflated view of man and a low view of God. Those who reject the Trinity, those who reject Christ's divinity, those who reject penal substitutionary atonement, those who reject the order of creation, those who reject God's sovereignty, do so all for the same underlying reason, that they have a view of man that's too high, right? And they, they view man's ability to figure things out as too high, and they have an insufficient view of God and His revelation. And because of that, God, because, because of that, what God does and how He does it must then make sense to them from their, from their own point of view. How God operates and who God is in His nature must fit within the categories of their own understanding. By the way, that's why every heretical group that exists in Christianity has a God that ultimately has been brought down to their level that they can understand. Right? Whether we, whenever they, we reject what God reveals about Himself, and his will in the scriptures, even the difficult stuff, we rise above the scriptures and sit in judgment over God. That's what we do. We lower our view of God and elevate our view of our own selves. But the Bible makes it clear that this is a huge error. As Paul says, who are you? Oh man, to answer back to God. Will what is molded, say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Or as Isaiah says in Isaiah 10, 15, does an ax raise itself above the one who swings it? Does a, a saw boast over him who saws with it? Isaiah again says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And again, in, as in today's text, Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Now, I mentioned all this at the outset of this text today because having the right view of God not only has big philosophical implications for us, like His triune nature and His sovereignty, it also has practical implications for our everyday lives, for us and the church, as we learn to trust in God, even when the world doesn't make sense to us even when we can't see or understand what God is doing. How many of you in your life as a Christian have ever been in a place where you're like, I have no idea what God's doing? Come on, let me see your hands. Right? We all have. We all have. Now, without spending too much time, you know, let me let me find my spot again here. So well, that's what we're going to see in today's text. God works oftentimes in ways that are mysterious to us. Right? That's really the focus of where I want to take us today, is that God works in mysterious ways, right? Right? even when we can't see what he's doing. Right? That God has a wisdom and a plan, and that he works all things out for the good of those who love him and for his glory. Now, without spending too much time, on review, let's just take a moment to remind ourselves where we are. 
Paul in the letter to the in, in the letter to the Romans um, has explained the gospel in great detail, and he has he has done that in uh, chapters one through eight. He explained what the gospel is, how the gospel works, the blessings the gospel gives, and the immutable hope that those who trust in Christ will have because of the gospel. But then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul begins to defend the gospel against a huge objection that threatens to undermine the entire Christian faith. And the essence of that gospel, as we've talked about for the last several weeks, is is if the gospel is true, then why do so many Jews who were part of of a nation set aside by God, who called themselves by His name, why do they then reject the gospel? And the short answer is because they have hard, impenitent hearts of stone. So hard, in fact, that they they not only reject Christ, but they put Christ to to, to death, and they persecuted the early church. And because of this hardness, the you know, to the gospel. Many people believe that, that, that God had given up on the Jews, that they were just basically beyond redemption. Many people believe that, they, that, that evangelizing them was, was pointless, right? But Paul addresses this issue first by letting the Roman church know that God is not done with ethnic Israel and that God has used their failure, ethnic Israel's failure, to come to Christ in order to bring hope to the Gentiles, which in turn will draw more Jews into the family of God, resulting in worldwide blessing. That was God's plan, as Paul lets us in on. Secondly, Paul makes it clear that God has the power to bring even the hardest of hearts to faith. As we sang this morning, there is no one beyond the infinite stretch of God's mercy. And God will bring many Jews to faith before he is done. And then thirdly, Paul reminds them that they don't have the right to be arrogant or prideful about their relationship with God because the difference between those who have been saved and those who have not ultimately is grace. And God can and will show mercy on many Jews before he's done. And so they are not a lost cause. And so the reason why they reject The gospel is part of God's plan, but they're not a lost cause. And in light of that, Paul continues in verse 25, and that's where we're going to pick it up. And he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I didn't want you to become unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now this phrase that Paul uses here, wise in your own sight, actually is better rendered as lest you become conceited. That's really the emphasis of the Greek, right? Paul is saying is don't be conceited because guess what ignorance leads to? Conceit, right? And so the first thing that we need to see is Paul is continuing his message against arrogance and boastfulness by Christians because he said, as he said, right, in the span of a few verses, don't be arrogant, don't be proud. And now he's saying, don't be conceited. Don't let your ignorance cause you to have a view of yourself that is too high. Because guess what? There is something that you don't know. There is something I need to make you aware of. A mystery, he says, revealed by God. Now, this word mystery, in our common parlance, usually means spooky or you know unknown. right? But... It, but it doesn't mean or convey the sense of a secret hidden knowledge you know, that only super spiritual people can discern. Right? It's not a secret, it's not secret information that only the initiated can, can grab a hold of. Rather, a mystery, as Paul uses the word here in this text, is something that was once unknown but has now been revealed by God. It was once unknown but now is known. It was something that mankind was unaware of, but now has been made known through God's revelation. Well, what was formerly unknown by man that is now being revealed by Paul? What's he referring to? What is this revealed truth that that he doesn't want the Roman church to be ignorant of so that they won't be conceited? Well, he says, the mystery is a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The mystery was the fact that the Jews had rejected the gospel because God in his judgment upon Israel had hardened the hearts of many of the Jews. Remember, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will will 
Harden whom I will harden. God, because of the Israelites' unfaithfulness, and we're not talking about a little bit, we're talking about continual unfaithfulness, judged the nation of Israel by hardening the hearts of many of them to the gospel. This is, by the way, God's doing. Now, a remnant, the the elect, did believe, but the majority, as we know from history, the majority of them did not because of God's hardening. And this partial hardening, right? not a total hardening, this partial hardening that God had imposed upon them, Paul is telling us is not going to be permanent. It's not a forever thing. Though it might seem like it, in the moment, especially in the first century when, when so many Christians were suffering so much persecution. This partial hardening where the majority of the Jews reject the gospel actually at some point will come to an end. And what Paul says, he says that end is when the fullness of the Gentiles would come in. So this is in essence what Paul was saying before. God ordained to judge Israel and uses their failure to come to faith in Christ as a means to bring the gospel to the rest of the world, the Gentiles. God uses their failure and their unfaithfulness and disobedience to bring about good for his elect in the rest of the world. And guess what happened? The gospel has really literally spread all over the world. We're here because of of that very thing. But Paul also says, don't give up on the Jews because God will use the gospel given to the Gentiles to ultimately bring revival to ethnic Israel, that he will end this partial hardening at some point, and he will do that at the right time, which has been God's sovereign plan all along. And so what we see is is Paul is just continuing the same theme here. And as we said before, God has always, I want you to hear me, God has always had one people, his elect. And this people was made up initially of ethnic Jews from the political nation of Israel, but not all ethnic Jews and not all of the nation of Israel were part of God's family, as Paul will say, or has already said. Not all who are descended from Israel are of Israel. And so God's elect family started among the Jews, but then Christ, the one the Jews were looking for, comes into the world, and some of the ethnic Jews believed, Peter, you know, James, John, Paul, some of the Jews believed and put their faith in Christ, but most of them rejected the gospel because God had hardened their hearts, and God, according to this, to his eternal plan of redemption, used that rejection to bring the gospel to his elect in the rest of the world. And so God's family, his elect, his church was made up of believing Jews throughout history, now includes the rest of us, Gentiles. And it's because of that, the gospel would spread around the world so that God would have a family of every nation, tribe, and tongue. But that is not the end. Because God will one day use the church, this people made up of Jews and Gentiles, to bring more ethnic Jews into the family of God. There will be a revival that will bring them in. That's what Paul has been talking about and now reaffirms that and says that this is God's plan that he revealed. So don't you dare be conceited and think too highly of yourselves as if you're something special. God has been and still is in control and he's working on his plan. Just be grateful that you're part of that plan. That right there, brothers and sisters, ought to be the order of the day. Every time you open your eyes is gratitude. And and I'm saying this as someone who sometimes might struggle with that from time to time. But you open them eyes. First of all, you should be grateful to God that you woke up. And then when you check on your family, you should be grateful to God that they are alive and healthy and well. Because guess what? If any of that's wrong, it doesn't matter how good the day is, right? And then beyond that, you remember the fact that you have put your faith in Christ and the promises. If you've done that, you're part of God's family. You have now more than many people throughout all of history. You have more to be grateful for. We should be grateful that we're part of God's plan. And then Paul adds, and in this way, All Israel will be saved, as it's written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
Paul points the Roman church to the Old Testament promises that salvation will come one day to the Jews. Now, this text has been, this particular text, especially verse 26, has been used and abused and reabused many times to promote two very destructive ideas in our time. The first one that is where many people take this verse out of context and they use it as a proof text to say all Jewish people, all ethnic Israelites will ultimately be saved. There are people who believe that the Jews will be saved simply because they're Jews. Because they say, this is what the verse says, all Israel will be saved. And I'm not just talking about a few kind of oddball people. I'm talking about people in our community that you know. Right? There is a church in this community that teaches this very thing. I've heard it. They believe that because, because of this verse, that every individual who has ever been Jewish will be saved simply because they're Jews, simply because they're DNA. And because they're Jews, they are God's chosen people. But the fact is, that's heresy. And by the way, it's rejected throughout the rest of the letter to Romans and all the rest of scriptures. I mean, Paul has already made it clear that not all Jews are part of spiritual Israel, right? And, 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 and being one of God's people is never, has never been about ethnicity or nationality. It's been about his, his sovereign election and faith in the gospel. Even more, Paul laments, as we have seen before, that many of his brethren are lost, and Paul has made a point to demonstrate the Jews are just as liable to judgment and the wrath of God as Gentiles are. If you don't believe me, then go back and reread Romans 1 through 3. The fact is, this is a dangerous teaching because not every person born with Jewish DNA will be saved. Only those who come to faith in Christ will be saved. And I'm going to say that again because there are a lot of Christians. I want, to hear, I want you to hear me. There are a lot of American Christians, especially, who struggle to actually utter those words out loud. The only Jews who will be saved are the ones in the past who look forward to Christ by faith and the ones now who look back to Christ and His finished work on the cross by faith. Now, the second dangerous idea springs from the first one because there are people who believe that because all Jews will be saved, they, must, they believe that there must be then a different mechanism or different basis for them to be saved. There are people who claim that God has two different covenants by which He saves people. They say that the church is saved by the new covenant and that the Jews are saved by the old covenant. This is a very popular idea, by the way. And it gained popularity, especially in the 20th century, after the Holocaust and after World War II and the nation of Israel became a nation again. Because many Jewish people emphatically declared that evangelizing them was seen by them as anti-Semitism. Believing Jews demanded that sharing Christ with them, telling them about your faith, to them was anti-Semitism. And this, by the way, is the reason why Jews persecute Christians in Israel even today, because they hate Christ and they believe to share the gospel with them is, is hateful to them and it is persecuting them. And, and many in the Christian world sheepishly kind of then went along with that. It's, it's, like when you, it's like nowadays when somebody calls you a racist. Even though that it's not true, because people just throw that label around you know, willy-nilly, right? people go to great lengths to avoid even being thought of, or even maybe somebody might even say it. It's the same way that many in the church have gone a long way to avoid being called anti-Semitic, even to the point of avoiding missions and avoiding evangelism in the land of Israel. This is why you will hear famous preachers, I'm talking about really famous mega church pastors, say we shouldn't even try to evangelize the Jews lest we offend them. But the problem is this attitude is consigning many of these people to hell. Because hear me, not only is the gospel offensive anyway, right? It offends those who are perishing. That's what the Bible tells us. Every Jew who rejects the gospel will meet the same fate that every Gentile who rejects the gospel will. And they will experience, I want you to hear me, I mean this in complete love, 
They will experience the awful and terrible wrath of God and spend eternity apart from him, right? Just like the Gentiles who reject Christ's will, even though that they are Jewish. Again, many people who call themselves Christians cannot bring themselves to admit this, but it's still true. Jews who reject Christ are hellbound like the rest of the world. And this is what Paul, by the way, has been arguing. The Jews will not be saved by the old covenant. They will not be saved by their intuition. They're not going to be saved by some religious visions they might have. They're not going to be saved by their family relationships or any other means. They will get saved like the rest of the world gets saved through evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, look what Paul says. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Right? And what kind of salvation is he talking about here? Well, he tells us. He says, as it's written, the deliverer, well, who's the deliverer? Christ will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What covenant is he talking about? The new covenant. Right? Because how does sin get taken away? Not by the blood of bulls and goats, as we've been told, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? Paul makes it clear that that's the salvation that they're called to. The salvation Paul is promising for the Jews is the same salvation that he has been talking about from the beginning of Romans. Justification by faith. The Jews will not be saved unless they are evangelized by the church. Unless they hear the gospel preach, unless they believe the gospel, they will not be saved. But praise the Lord that God says, that many of them will hear and believe. But then, Paul, what does he mean by all Israel? Let's just deal with that. And Paul, what Paul is saying is, when he's referring to is a great mass of Jews, right? Other than the little remnant that he's been talking about all the way to this point, he's talking about a great mass of Jewish people. And this is what he's been saying all throughout chapter 11. God will redeem a huge portion of ethnic Israel. Now, this isn't about national Israel. It's about ethnic Jews. Paul is saying a great many of them, a multitude will be gathered and saved. The gospel and the church will be successful. Just as God changed the hearts of the Gentiles and many Gentiles come to faith, many ethnic Jews will have their hearts changed by the Holy Spirit and come to faith in Christ. And Paul says, as regards for the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, the thing that we need to be careful of and, and, and understand is Paul isn't saying that, that, that these are enemies for us to hate, right? These are not enemies that we go to war with. They're enemies in the sense that they reject Christ and they reject our message. And even at times, we'll even persecute Gentiles. They are enemies of God under his judgment. But what did Jesus say about our enemies? He said, we're to love our enemies, so we'll be like God. Because the Jews, though enemies of God, are also loved by God. Like we were. Remember the words? In that while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, they're not loved because of anything in them intrinsically, same with us. They are loved because of the promise that God made to Abraham. And then Paul goes on and says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, many people will say that this is either about all ethnic Jews getting saved, or this is about land promises given to the nation of Israel, right? But without spending a whole lot of time debating all of the issues here, Right? These perspectives actually are in error here because what's in view is what Paul's been talking about from the, is from the beginning of Romans. And that is the redemption of God that he has for them and us given to us through Christ. That is the calling and the gifts that Paul has been talking about. He's not been talking about land promises or national callings. He's talking about the promise of redemption and the effectual calling that results in faith. By the way, this verse along with Romans chapter 8 is why we can be confident in our salvation. 
because God's effectual calling is irrevocable. It can't be canceled. Right? The general call right, of the gospel can be rejected. It is all the time. But God's effectual call where the Spirit changes your heart can't be. If God effectually calls us, we will believe. Right? This is the basis of the doctrine of irresistible grace. Right? Hear the words of Paul again in chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, remember that's God's people, those who love God, all things work together. All things work together for, the, for good for those who are what? Called effectually according to his purpose. God's people are those who, are, who love God and have been called by him. And he continues, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predetermined, foreordained to be conformed in the image of the Son in order that we might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. By how? By faith, right? And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Wait a minute, we're not glorified yet. No, it's not yet, but it's already a settled reality because God's sovereign. You see, salvation, the thing that we need to remind ourselves of is God is bigger than our imagination and salvation is completely the work of him and not man. And God effectively calls us and when he does, we will respond by our own free will and faith. So this calling and these gifts that he's talking about was promised to Abraham and his offspring, the children of the promise. God promised that Abraham would become father of a grand family, a grand family, by the way, that includes both Jews and Gentiles. And that family would be innumerable. But as we know, many Jews rejected Christ, so the Gentiles would become included and the promise is the Jews will not be forgotten because God isn't finished with them. And so Paul says, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have become disobedient in order that they may have the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The thing that I think we forget when we when we it's really easy, by the way, to take this book and then read ourselves into the, the story and read ourselves into the text and read our own lives into it and read our own country into it, forgetting that there is a story of a whole bunch of people that came before us, right? It's easy to forget that there was a time when Jews believed that it was inconceivable for Gentiles to be part of God's family and to be redeemed, Right? The Jews saw Gentiles as heathens and pagans because they lived in a way that offended them and offended God. They were ritually unclean and they were vile in the sight of the Jews. They did not have God's law and they participated in every form of sexual impurity and immorality imaginable. Right? We think that things can be bad now. I'm telling you, it was bad then too. The Gentiles were known for their licentiousness. They were known for their cruelty. They were known for mistreating their own children. They were known for all kinds of unspeakable acts. And the Jews viewed them as something other than human, vile and unclean. In fact, the Jews wouldn't even eat with them. They wouldn't even sit down and have a meal with them unless they become defiled themselves. In fact, when they dealt with the Gentiles, they felt comp compelled to go home and change their clothes and wash their hands. The Gentiles, for them, were an unredeemable class of people. Right? But Paul says in Ephesians 2, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who they were. In the minds of everybody, every Jew in, in the world, they were unredeemable. But then Paul says, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those who seemed beyond God's mercy were redeemed by God. 
and they were redeemed in a way that nobody saw coming. They were redeemed through the failure of the Jews to come to Christ. And it was through this rejection of the gospel that Israel, that the Gentiles were shown mercy. Again, that's why Paul reminds him, don't you dare be arrogant or proud. Don't be conceited because in the same way that God showed you undeserved mercy, God will now show the same kind of mercy on those who seem to you to be irredeemable. The ethnic Jews who reject Christ, who persecute Christians, God will redeem even them. And do you know how God's going to redeem them? Through the church. Through the church going out into the world and proclaiming the gospel to them. That is how God will show mercy on them and change and God will change many of their hearts, and they will believe and be saved. And then Paul brings this whole discussion full circle to his argument. In Romans chapter 3, he says, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now again, this word all is a stumbling block for some people who are prone to take things out of context. Universalists use the word as proof text to say that all people will be saved at some point, right? But again, for that to be true, you got to take the rest of the Bible and the rest of Romans and just throw it out in trash. Because Romans flatly rejects universalism. Instead, Paul, what he's saying, right, what he's saying ought to remind us of what he's already said in Romans chapter 3. In verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, right? Again, notice the word all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. When, when Paul says that, that says all in chapter 3, he isn't just talking about all people. He's talking about both the groups, Gentiles and Jews. He goes on and says, For God has consigned all Jews and Gentiles to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all both Jews and Gentiles. Both groups have been made sinners, and both groups now can receive mercy Right? And again, Romans chapter 3, for, for we know, for we already charge that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have, together, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. For there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What Paul is arguing is both Jews and Gentiles have been indicted and convicted in their sinful rebellion against God. And the only way for Jews and Gentiles to be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul promises, just as God is bringing in a great multitude of Gentiles into the family of God, he will one day bring a multitude of Jews into the family by the same exact means. And so what we find is God unfolds his plan of redemption in a way that is surprising and mysterious. That's why he calls it a mystery. Nobody saw it coming. God does things in a way that no one expects. And God's plan is unfolding even now, even at times when we can't see it. Ultimately, God brings redemption to his people and his elect in ways that, that is glorious to him, right? In a way that glorifies him. And this truth actually brings Paul to spontaneous worship here. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has seen, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God's ways are higher than our ways. He does not, he does what he does by the counsel of his own will. Our confession even says in chapter 5, verse 1, or, or uh, paragraph 1, God, the good creator of all things, is infinite in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to produce for which they were created 
He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and free, unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of, of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. God does what he does according to his own will for his own glory. Right? Because notice how Paul wraps up this section. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. I love these words, by the way, for from him and through him and to him are all things. God's grace and his redemption from God's grace and his redemption of his people is from him. He ordained it, he decreed it in eternity past, he predestined us for redemption along with the rest of the elect, both Jew and Gentile, and he works providentially to bring it about. Salvation is from God. All that God sends his mind to and all that God decrees to happen is from him. And it comes to pass through him. God is sovereign and in control. And he works all things out for the good of those who love him. He's the one who works all things out for his good and our, I mean, for, for our good and his glory. And he is the one through which his providence guides all things. And it is through Christ that redemption is made possible. Our redemption is from God the Father because He decreed it, and it's through God the Son because He accomplished it for us in His life and death on the cross. Our redemption is from Him and through Him, but our redemption is also to Him. You see, we're not redeemed simply so that we can be redeemed for our own purposes. We were redeemed for Him. We're not redeemed just, we're not just redeemed from something. We are redeemed for someone, to someone. We're redeemed to God, to live for Him, to glorify Him. In fact, our catechism asks the question, what's the chief end or what's the purpose of man? And the answer is the chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our redemption is to, is to glorify God. We are redeemed to Him. And so what we see is the Jews rejected Christ because their hearts were hard and their hearts were hard because God's judgment was against them. But God isn't done with them because just as he used their failure to bring Gentiles into his family, he's going to use the same mercy that he had for us to bring not just a tiny remnant of Jews to his family, but many, many, many Jews into his family. And all this is according to his will and his plan, and it is all for his own glory. What a glorious mystery that has been revealed in the scriptures. Now, for us here and now, what's the takeaway? Well, I think the first thing, I think what we need to do is just simply recognize is that is God and his will and his wisdom are simply beyond our ability to fathom and understand just by the nature of who God is. As Paul declares, and what we need to, to do is, is, is take him at his word and trust that he is always at work, that he's always working things out for our good, and that he's always at work keeping his promises to us. Even when you can't see it, and even if we don't ever see it in our lifetime. Even if we walk through the darkness all the days of our lives, as Tom Wells wrote, the Christian rejoices in the wisdom of God. Heartache comes to him as it does all men. Puzzles about the world situation perplex him too. He has no inside information on the day-to-day -day acts of God, but the Christian has something better. He has faith in the wisdom of God. The Christian knows that God knows what he's doing. God is at work in ways today that you're just not going to be able to fully fathom. And God can and does things, God can and does do things in ways that will amaze us, in ways that will baffle us, sometimes in ways that will frighten us, and at times he does things in ways that will delight us. 
what we need to do in light of all this and in light of the fact that he's more than can be contained in our finite little minds is we need, what we need to do is we just need to trust him. We need to trust in him. Even when things don't make sense, even when all things seem lost, we need to trust in him and take him at his word that all things work together for the good of those who love him because he's at work and he's the one who calls us to him. We need to trust in him even when science says the Bible's wrong. We need to trust him even when the culture says the Bible is just a tool of conservative white cisgender men who oppress everyone else. We need to trust in him even when it seems that our beloved country is falling apart from the inside out. We need to trust in him even when it seems like faithfulness, like the faithful in our church is dwindling down to a precious few. We need to trust in him even when those that we love seem to be so hardened against the gospel. We need to trust him because he is good and he is just and all powerful and he works in ways that we can't possibly fathom. We need to trust him because he always keeps his promises, right? And what he's promised is that he will keep us and bring us safely home. And so with that, if you're not in Christ, repent and believe the gospel. Put your faith and your trust in him and the promise is that he will not put you to shame, that he will, he will save you. For those who believe the gospel, the promise is that you will forever be one of his children. And then those who are in Christ, as I always say, there's a lot to worry about in this world. Rest in what God has done for you. You don't have to weary yourself and run around like a chicken with your head cut off wondering, is God happy with me today? Is God happy with me today? Did I do enough? The reality is we should pursue holiness and we should seek to walk in holiness, but understand, right? You're not saved by what you can do for God and your ability to never sin again. You're saved by grace through faith. Rest in that, hold on to that, trust in that. And then finally, we need to go to rescue the lost because unless people hear the gospel and believe the gospel, they're not gonna come to faith, right? And, and here's the thing, you don't have to be brilliant at this. You don't have to be a great orator. You just have to do the things that God has called you to do, which is to sow the seed, love the people, and pray for God to change their hearts, and then just not give up. Sow the seed and, and share the words of the gospel with people because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Right? And then love them, showing the light of Christ and the love of Christ to them. And then pray for God to do the, only, the, the, the thing that only God can do, which is change hearts. And then never give up trusting that God is at work in ways that you can't even possibly imagine using the seed that you're sowing and the work that you're doing to expand the kingdom. Our choice today is to trust in what he's doing. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.